Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. And Greg. Hey, everybody. On our last episode, if you listened a couple weeks ago, we discussed the Battle of Blair Mountain, which took place 100 years ago next week now. Um, This was an event in which miners, you know, struggling for recognition for their fledgling union faced off against the United States military and a company called the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency, which was little more than, you know, hired mercenaries for the mining companies to, you know, put down threats like unionization. Um, there were many companies like the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agencies at the time, um, the most prominent of which was probably the Pinkertons, uh, a name that longtime punching out listeners will be very familiar with. Uh, the Pinkertons were nationwide in offering their services to employers for, uh, you know, ridding out threats from unionization and uh, other, you know, things that could help workers. Um, famously, they were responsible for um, the deaths of several workers in the homestead strike in Pennsylvania in the 1890s. Um, you know, they were just real bad guys of history and um, still around today in one form or another. A couple of days ago now, as we record this, uh, there was news that Amazon Studios is producing a movie based on the first woman to be a Pinkerton detective. Um, and that seems like an interesting intro point for our discussion today, which is going to be about union busting in the 21st century and how companies like Amazon are you know, using new methods to achieve old goals of stopping unionization wherever they can. We've talked in the past few months about the uh, union vote in Alabama at a Amazon warehouse there and the vote failed, though there may be now a chance at a revote owing to Amazon's efforts to undermine the election. Uh, they had a mailbox placed in the warehouse prominently under like surveillance footage so that workers wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable delivering pro-union votes in that setting. Um, and the NLRB ruled against Amazon as a result of that. Um, Noah... What what can we say about Amazon that we haven't already? Not much. I will ask, do you think that they greenlit that movie specifically because the NLRB ruled against them? <laughs> it's a it's a fun thought. You you uh you dinged us for our union busting, so we'll show you. We're gonna make an entire movie about why that's a good thing. It's one it's, of those things where it's like, oh, it's a Period piece, female Sherlock Holmes starring Emily Blunt, like Dwayne The Rock Johnson is producing. But at the back of our heads, we have to be like, is this a propaganda effort on Amazon to glorify the Pinkertons? And, you know, Amazon's uh, television productions have never been propaganda before. There's no, like, Tom Clancy stuff going on there. With Emily Blunt's husband, interestingly enough. Yes. But yeah. They're, that entire family is just circling the drain now. Did they also produce the movie, uh, the Oscar winner one about the Nomadland, where they had, it's one of the only movies with shots inside an Amazon facility, and they just kind of like make Amazon seem like this thing that pays workers well. Uh, there's no negative reaction to him. I think that was produced by them as well. Huh. Things that make you go, hmm. Um, I, I, I guess... One of the points I'm trying to uh, get at in this long-winded intro to th- today's topic is the idea that union busting is no longer necessarily about uh, hiring more armed mercenaries than the union can uh, fight off. It is largely done by you know high-priced lawyers and law firms and um, you know 
careful weaseling around NLRB rules until you find something that might be more favorable landscape for your company as opposed to the union. Um, the New York Times currently is involved in um, a sort of a growing ugly uh, union fight now with um, some of its tech reporters, I believe. Um, and they have taken efforts in, you know, the, the tech reporters want a union and the New York Times refuses to just um, recognize that union. And so now they are in this process of hashing out what an election will look like. And the New York Times, it has been found, has been trying its hardest to define the terms of that election and define who can be a part of this union. Uh, just to clarify, I believe mm -hmm. it is the tech workers for New York Times. They're offering a lot of different tech products. So they're, they're tech reporters. All the reporters are already in the News Guild. The News Guild is trying to unionize the uh, tech workers within the New York Times. And it's very interesting, these law firms that these companies like the New York Times are hiring. I kind of think of them as like Pinkertons of propaganda. They kind of like strategize the best way to crush these union efforts and like the messaging they'll do, the tactics they take. And it's kind of a joke to call them labor lawyers. I feel like I read that in one of these articles that it's like they're, <laughs> the explicit purpose of these law firms is to crush union efforts and they call themselves labor law firms. It's disgusting, I think. Yep. And, uh, in, and, and I think you'll find that the other Pinkertons of propaganda, as we already mentioned, are the Pinkertons because they're they're still around and they're commercials to their corporate clients. Uh, the the one that we had on the I think we played a little bit of one on the show and it mentioned natural disasters uh, and I can't remember the second one. And then if I remember correctly, like activists or something <laughs> were one of these six dangers that you have to worry about if you're a big corporation and that the Pinkertons will help you with by sending men with guns. So they haven't really changed a lot in that regard, which is fun. The, the thing about the New York Times, uh, this this union fight that they're having, right? So, Greg, you mentioned that these are tech workers. These are one of the very common stereotypes, and I know we're going to get into this a couple more times, that union busting in, in the U.S. at least relies on is this idea that there's just certain sectors of workers that don't need a union. This is a thing they say a lot about uh, my job. This is a thing that you often hear about journalists. This is a thing that you often hear about basically anybody who doesn't, can't really lose a hand at work, basically. But the thing with tech workers is that, I mean, they are classically overworked to do a whole range of products that they are responsible for keeping in tip-top shape repeatedly throughout the life cycle of the product. Um, getting dangerously corporate with my uh, terms here. And so in the 21st century, they are exactly the kind of people that you would want to be able to argue for their contractual rights. They are exactly the kind of people who need to be able to collectively bargain because corporations like the New York Times depend on them. So the fact that the News Guild is actually looking to to add them in and to include them in this unionization process is a 100% unironic good thing. But of course, it means that now the New York Times has to deal with to different sectors of unionized workers, and they can't have that. And so, you know, they, they're, well, I guess where I'm going with this is that it's very interesting because here I was told that the New York Times is, is one of these social bulwarks of democracy that you have to participate in if you want to be, you know, a, a, a good American citizen. Uh, you, you have to subscribe and give them your money because otherwise, and I know this is somebody else's slogan, but otherwise democracy dies. And yet here we are. Not only that, but the New York Times, in one of the articles, noted that in 2007, I believe, the New York Times wrote an editorial that said that if a majority of the workers sign on to join a union, they should automatically do it without having an election. Guess what the New York Times did when a majority of the tech workers signed on to join a union? They chose to have elections anyway, instead of just automatically creating the union. They're hypocrites. Um, it, was, the it was 2007. It was a different time. <laughs> It's a uh, union organizi organizing for the, uh, the, but not for me. It's like, it's for other companies, but not for us. Um, it's just a branding exercise for the New York Times. Uh, the other thing is that the News Guild, uh, which is organizing these tech workers, they, they're very aggressive. They seem like they're moving into other areas. They're organizing, uh, I think they said the uh, Los Angeles Times, Bloomberg, uh, The Guardian, um, a few other places. 
Um, but that one of the things they wanted to do was increase dues in order to organize even more. And the New York Times' uh, like star reporters, op-ed writers, people like that, the people that were older, get paid the most, who have their own like uh, credibility, can go elsewhere. They were, wrote an open letter opposing uh, raising uh, the dues because you know, these people that get paid the most, they do they see themselves more as workers or do they see themselves more as management? Uh, it was very interesting that you saw that, that they were against the workers, against the News Guild. One, one of the reasons we know so much about the New York Times uh, efforts to undermine this budding unionization is the fact that one of the uh, law firms they hired to represent them uh, accidentally sent a private strategy memo to representatives for the newly unionized staff, which if you're going to union bust, this is a big no-no, folks. You cannot be emailing your strategy memos to the other side. It's such a power move. <laughs> it, it's 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 like that story of the guy playing Go who says, here's where my flag is, come and take it. Stratego, pardon me, not Go. Uh, to quote from the Daily Beast, which reported on this story first, the errantly emailed slideshow laid out the options for the Times as management strategized how to limit the scope of the union. In one slide titled Operating Principles, the lawyers discussed management's potential goals, including ensuring supervisors are not involved in the union, seeking the smallest bargaining unit that is justifiable, or seeking the bargaining unit where we are most likely to win an election that would effectively defeat the unionization effort. The firm laid out three potential paths for the paper, allowing a large, medium, or small union size. Each came with their own considerations. The Times outside lawyers reasoned the paper would have its highest chances of winning an election outright against the union if the paper agreed to potentially allow more staff into the unit. But the law firm also suggested that a larger unit would prevent the paper from attracting and retaining talent. A smaller unit, the legal team argued, would likely win the NLRB election, but would be much more limited in scope, resulting in a union nearly half the size. The paper opted for what the firm labeled the most aggressive option, which would keep the union to under 400 members. There's a lot of legalese there, you know, to sort of lay it out for people who might not be familiar with how an NLRB election works. Um, you have to define what the bargaining unit will be, um, whether that's tech workers or, you know, who gets counted as a tech worker exactly is really a large part of what these discussions are. And the idea here being that if they can widen the unit so much that you include a lot of people who aren't necessarily as engaged with the union, you could win that election more easily. And the Times has instead opted to define the union very narrowly in the hopes that, you know, if they win the election, they'll only be representing a smaller fraction of their workers. It, it was also a good sign, I thought, because the New York Times and this law firm decided that they would they were going to lose the election. So they wanted to define it in a sm as a smaller union. So there'd be a smaller bargaining unit so that they would uh, get a more favorable contract for the New York Times versus the union. They thought the union could have won with a larger amount of membership. Um, it's also interesting because like, there hasn't been uh, a lot of union militancy in the past many years. And uh, it, it's increasing now. And then we're getting to see these updated tactics from the New York Times. But also from these law firms, these Pinkertons of propaganda. Um, and so we're getting an inside look at how they think. Um, the other thing that they also had was uh, an internal poll of workers in different areas and how likely they were to uh, favor the union or not. And this was grounds for future NLRB complaints and lawsuits because that is a sign that they were sp possibly spying on workers. How did they do this internal poll, which is illegal under since the 1930s of the NLRB, the article said. They have ways of making them talk. But in all seriousness, these firms do hire people, and, and we've talked about it before on this show, that during unionization efforts, uh, union avoidance firms, which is what they call themselves, union busters, when they're hired, they will legitimately secrete people into the workplace to try and do this kind of internal polling work, to try and convince employees not to support the union. Uh, something like a reverse salting process. Mm. I don't really know what you would call that. But well, it's well, that practice dates back 
all the way to the Pinkertons. The Pinkertons exactly. famously had infiltrators within, you know, the largest unions in the country. Which is why we've uh, we've talked on this show about things like the Molly Maguires and so on, where um, detective agencies like the Pinkertons and so on would send these people in as uh, agent provocateurs and, and get uh, people riled up to do violence that then justified sending the army or sending police or what have you in there. The New York Times is obviously not going to do that yet, but they really kind of, it, it's kind of amazing because... It, it tells you something, I think, about who composes the management class of this country, that you run a newspaper. If there is one thing where, let's say, you, you run a place that is trying to unionize, and you accidentally end up sending the slides for your strategy to oppose that union to the opposition, to the union organizers... The one place where you might expect that that is immediately going to be used against you is a newspaper. This this is maybe the worst place to pull this. And they did so. And in doing so, it is very obvious that the management class at the New York Times thinks they are running any other business. They, they don't realize what it is that they are in charge of, which is why they think the same strategies would work. And if I'm honest, I think... And, and I think we'll get more into this as the show goes on. But I think the reason they went for a smaller union is also because there's another commonality in management that we see with a lot of these companies. They love to have a target. Now, I'm non-union, but the job I do normally is unionized. And there is nothing my management loves more than bringing up how evil the unionized version of my job is and how they can't do anything right. And the unions control them and put the microchip in their brains and the 5g and whatever. And the unions are apparently the COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, And they'll, they, they will bring this up as though it is this third party, this outsider reaching its tentacles into the workplace and destroying the familial relationship between management and labor. And I work for an institution that publicly supports the rights of workers to form a union, just not when they work for them. So it's it's pretty interesting to see, again, the New York Times not being at all different in that regard. My favorite thing about them accidentally sending um, that inside information on how to bust the union to a union uh, supporter was that this article, The Daily Beast... um, they are represented by the News Guild. So I, you know, we can speculate, but maybe one of that union supporter, that union supporter was like, oh, we have to get this information out there. I'll talk to the Guild. And then they found a News Guild represented reporter at the Daily Beast to publish this. So that's, uh, you know, we're talking about the new strategies of union busting. We're also talking about the new strategies of unionizing as well. So, I mean, good on them. Good on the News Guild. Yes. Rich, on our previous episode, used the old phrase, don't pick fights against people who buy ink by the barrel. And Mm -hmm. in this case, maybe the phrase should be, don't pick fights against people who have a lot of friends at many media outlets. (laughs) (laughs) Because uh, all your dirty laundry will be aired if you choose to do that. The New York Times is not the only sort of uh, white collar firm looking to avoid you know, any possible union trouble in its workplace. Um, Recently, there have been a a number of stories from a video game company, Activision Blizzard. This is one of the biggest companies in the industry. Um, Some really noxious harassment and uh, sexual assault happening within that company. And, uh, you know, the video game industry has long had a problem with workplace culture being very um, dominated by uh, men and um, the things men like to do, unfortunately. In response to all of this, there was a um, walkout by employees and there's a lawsuit coming from the state of California due to um, the problems there. And in response to you know all this coverage and a newfound sense of solidarity among its workers, Activision Blizzard responded by hiring a firm known for union busting. 
Um, this is a firm that has worked with Amazon in the past on, you know, union avoidance, I guess would be the term they use. This, the company's name is um, Wilmer Hale. You know, it's a, a law firm. And just to quote from an article in uh, Paste Magazine, um, following a company-wide wide email, the company hired law firm Wilmer Hale to review Activision Blizzard's policies and procedures. The law firm, notably the same used by Amazon to prevent workers from unionizing, will go into effect immediately. Um, th- this is something that workers noticed. Um, the game industry is famously not unionized in the U.S., and you know there's some doubt about whether even this will result in a union at Activision Blizzard. But the company is nevertheless trying to get out ahead of that problem and seeing if they can sort of steer the response into things like a, a one-day walkout rather than long-term collective action. Which is why they paid employees for that one-day walkout. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's a pretty, I wouldn't say, I, I don't think it's a super common tactic, but it is a pretty quick way to sort of diffuse the tension in that regard. Because after all, if you're paying employees for doing this, you're also taking away the rebelliousness of the action. The whole point is that you are sacrificing your chance at pay. You are sacrificing, obviously, you know, your management's going to be annoyed at you and so on. But by treating it, you're, you're essentially treating it like, uh, you're ignoring a child that's angry at you for very justifiable reasons. And uh, that it, it's, it's almost infantilizing in that way. Second of all, I wanted to say, saying that a law firm goes into effect immediately is not how a law firm works. <laughs> it's not a ruling by the Supreme Court. It's it, whatever. But third of all, I was reading the paragraph after what you just read, and it mentions that uh, what is it? The 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 person who is going to be leading this review process used to be the enforcement director at the Securities and Exchange Commission under Donald Trump, which I have to imagine is the most do nothing job there was in the entire <laughs> Trump administration. It's incredible that, and and there have been people who have been pointing this out now because we have the data, because all of these people have been hired by these big government agencies or big law firms, and so on. But there have people, there have been people who have pointed out that all of these people that we said rightly should never be allowed back in polite society, given what they were doing over the last four years, have all basically found the same pay or better in the private sector now, and are friend of the show, Stephanie Avakian here, is clearly one such person going from not doing a damn thing at the SEC to reviewing policies and procedures. Well, while you mention former members of Republican presidential administrations, um, Activision uh, initial response to all of these allegations stepped in it just a little bit. Chief Compliance Officer Francis Townsend um, wrote like a company-wide email saying that these allegations were distorting, you know, the facts and distorting, you know, the reality of the situation. Previously, her work included um, apologizing for torture under the Bush administration. She was a member of the George W. Bush administration, his second term uh, in the Department of Homeland Security. And uh, you know, finding legal justification for the torture that took place during that era. Wait, are you guys saying all the worst people in the world are union busters? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> We're not not saying it. They run in the same crowd, certainly. It turns out that Francis Townsend's work in the compliance industry goes back a long way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, f- following, like, employee backlash to this letter from Townsend, she, like, deleted her entire Twitter account. <laughs> and um, has stepped down from the company's, quote, women's network, but remains their chief compliance officer. That's a horrible title. Yeah. That's the worst title I've ever heard. To quote from an article in Eurogamer, Townsend stepped down from the position of executive sponsor of Activision Blizzard Women's Network. I wonder if they just made that up to put like women in there. We have women in leadership, just like throwing all these propaganda things all at once. It's really, it's really unfortunate because this seemed like it would, would have been a very catalyzing moment to start a union. And then this whole tactic is so interesting. These modern union busting tactics for Blizzard to try to get out in front of it and be like, yeah, let's do this one day protest. 
Uh, we're, we're paying you. Other companies were bringing in food trucks. I wonder if Activision did that. It was just like this moment of just like this pressure release, the steam release to just get out the anger and then be like, we got rid of this guy. We have new management or we have some new management uh, problem solved. And just, I don't know. It just seemed very smart on their part. Quote, Later, Townsend drew more criticism by tweeting an article titled The Problem with Whistleblowing. Her old boss really had a problem with whistleblowing. Who, had a lot of oh those problems, God. really. Who writes and, these articles? <laughs> well, that that's a theme that we've talked about on this show, right? That there's always, and, and I know you know this, this is not new, but like that there is always going to be. There is always going to be money. There is always going to be power. There is always going to be access and prestige in serving the interests of the powerful. And the thing about it, though, for a lot of these modern union busters, and, you know, like, I don't think anybody working for Wilmer Hale has any illusions as to what they do for a living. I don't think they think they're saving the planet by union busting. But I think some of these people appear to have convinced themselves that they are the heroes in this story. And invariably, when they find out they're not, they have like this complete mental breakdown. And because now these tend to happen online or where they can be publicly reported and we can all hear and see them, uh, number one, they're much funnier. That That's part of it. But number two, I think it helps people understand that some of these compliance types and some of these HR people and some of these union busters they they are genuinely convinced that they live in some alternate dimension where unions are bad where they're the the like avengers of labor or some bs like that it's kind of incredible because the 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 moment they realize they are the baddies the mental break is so complete for all of them it's like you turned their normal brain off and you get these meltdowns and these people who just keep stepping on rakes over and over again because they they just can't seem to get out of their own way. And I, I genuinely think it makes a lot of us realize like these are not special people. This is the the equivalent of drowning the Spaniard in the river. They are mortal and they can be defeated. Just to give another concrete example of what all these high-priced lawyers, you know, what what they're really fighting for, I guess in a way. Um there was a story a couple days ago now in the Philadelphia Inquirer uh, about baristas who've been fired from their Starbucks in Philadelphia for organizing against the company. Initially they had started just trying to oust a manager who was particularly problematic. They were fired by Starbucks and they eventually, after a couple years, won their case. They turned down $100,000 to settle the case and instead got a ruling from a judge to ordering Starbucks to reinstate the workers with back pay which is a rare case of winning for like low-wage workers in one of these fights. But because everything is so wrapped up in legalese, you know, this was two years ago that they got fired. You know, it's been two years of a legal fight that they've had to endure just to get their jobs back, not even necessarily to get a union at their job. And And they don't have their jobs back yet because Starbucks immediately appealed. And during the appeal period, they don't have to do anything. So the the workers themselves were saying that it all, in terms of the ruling itself, it doesn't really do much. It essentially just proves that we had a point, but it doesn't really change our lives in any way. Mm-hmm. And the the fact that this is, I keep coming back to this. You know, the the first like move that made people go, oh, maybe the Biden administration will be different, is that his first big move was just summarily firing the general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board. And the person there now, my understanding is, is a union attorney of some standing, like somebody who's known for taking on this kind of case. But this is something where I think, as we saw with the the video that Biden recorded for the, uh, obliquely for the Amazon union vote in Alabama, this is somewhere where the bully pulpit and presidential leadership would probably be super helpful. It would be nice to see an administration where the candidate couldn't stop talking about how much of a union man he was, actually walk the walk on that, actually do the things that he said he's going to do in terms of supporting labor, especially when we have a judiciary that is going to be dead set against them. 
it's just I, I just think about like the Starbucks workers versus something like the New York Times workers or possibly the Blizzard Activision employees. Like you have different amounts of leverage as different types of workers and Starbucks employees at one location do not have a lot of leverage. And so at, like I agree, like something like the PRO Act, something like a more militant uh, presidential administration could be helpful. But it, it's just so unfortunate sometimes like we're talking about like modern union busting how hard it is to unionize. And even though they got this victory, they're still waiting to get their jobs back. It's uh... A lot of unions are busted before they can ever form just because the landscape seems so hostile to them. It seems like a losing battle. And so a lot of could-be labor efforts just don't happen because nobody wants to put in that energy into a losing battle. We're going to take a break here. When we come back, we'll talk a bit about why it is that companies are putting so much resources into union avoidance rather than just having workers unionize and paying them a little bit more. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still hi, y'all. And Greg. Yes, I'm still here. Uh, We want to use this second segment to talk a bit about why so many companies are so adamant about hiring union avoidance firms and, you know, avoiding having unions in their workplaces. But I, I think to get to that discussion and that point, we have to bring up yet another example of a company doing this. And again, similar to the New York Times, this is a company that uh, is publicly espousing, you know, liberal language and progressive talk rhetoric about, um, you know, their ideals. This is No Evil Foods, a company we've mentioned before on the program company that has they do like vegan meats they do uh, you know comrade cluck and el zapatista as names of their products you know just to give a sense of the imagery they're dabbling in nevertheless vile union busters there's Imagine an that. article in the american prospect by david dayan um who got a recording from one of these all hands meetings that was held at No Evil Foods, where the CEO of No Evil Foods, Mike Wolianski, was speaking to workers and trying to lay out his argument for why they shouldn't be unionizing. Quote, it's a very real risk that having a union at No Evil Foods will greatly impact our ability to continue raising capital, Wolianski intoned. Dayan notes that Uh, This is a stark contrast from the usual radical rhetoric coming from the company. You know, this is just Adam Smith capitalism right here. Quote, I had one of our current investors say this week, I've seen hundreds of companies come across my desk and I've never seen an investment in a unionized startup. If I was looking at this business for the first time, I would run the other way. And this is just a straight up appeal to you know, the interests of investors as opposed to workers. One of his closing arguments for this piece was, uh, uh, please understand that I have no control over what investors will do, he stressed. Uh, And, you know, he's offshoring the blame for his reaction on investors and how they might react to a union. He could be deposed with a new CEO brought in to run this business in a very different way. And lastly, he says, I'm asking you to step back. Give us a chance to be successful by voting no. You can always bring the union back in a year for another vote. Also, spoiler, the company shut down the food processing plant and fired all of them when the COVID started. And if they had that union, they would have had protections. And I just want to say this article was really remarkable because uh, they had like an hour of new recordings, but David Dayan also cites numerous like hours and hours of recordings of these captive audience meetings where th- this guy, Wolianski, I don't want to, mm-hmm. yeah, he, the CEO, he's making all these speeches. I think they have one of the lawyers from the law firms making speeches, but they're trying to do all these things to like 
mystify class relations. Just say like, the union is bad. You and I are friends. He like wears a beanie. He swears a lot. He's like, we're all on the same side. We're all vegan. Those union guys, they're just a bunch of like old white guys that are like sexist and racist, not like us here at No Evil Foods. Like it was really remarkable, all the stuff they would say. It's just a real distortion of language in order to make uh, anti-union talking points sound progressive. It's also taking into account like their vegan identity because they <laughs> note that this union it represents a meat processing plant, like some local meat cutters. And they're saying like, they're going to try to shut us down to help the meat cutting business or whatever. And that like, I'm a, I'm a radical vegan, like, and I don't want a union that represents meat cutters to also represent no evil foods. Love to greenwash union busting. Yeah. Wolianski And I think the others were named like McPeak. There was a lawyer who the, the article makes a point of mentioning that apparently the lawyer went through the vegan meat factory with a leather handbag. And apparently that was not objectionable. The union was objectionable, but not the leather handbag. So we know we know what offends veganism where, or at least Mike Wolianski's veganism. But this is uh, like the Activision Blizzard thing. I've talked before on this show fairly often about how the ambition of like every CEO in the U.S. appears to be to uh, construe themselves as like a feudal lord overseeing the serfs and it is nowhere more applicable than when you get a ceo who has the possibility of his workers or her workers because that can happen to hashtag girl boss unionizing and decides to respond to it by getting almost like paternally or parentally i should say offended there, there's this kind of weird moment there where a person who does not care whether you live or die any other day of your entire life, right? Suddenly says to you, no, no, we're family. We're, we're buddies. The union, they're coming in and ruining everything between us. But you and I, we're friends. We can make this work together, which I hate to tell you this. Generally, whether in personal or professional context, sign of an abusive relationship. But there it is. It's like an old truism. Management lies. Management lies. And then who is the biggest liar but the owner themselves when they're saying, like, we are a family. And then at the end, like, he fires everyone, doesn't give them severance, and is like, oh, it's so tragic that our meat, our own, like, they contract out the, their uh, food processing plant workers to, like, Illinois from, like, somewhere in the south. And then it's like, oh, it's so sad we had to do this. And then they put out some press release on how No Evil Foods is doing so good and making more money than ever and, like, is a very successful company. It's Mind you, of course, the, the whole reason that the union couldn't happen is because the company had to run at a $200,000 a month loss for like a year or two so he could build scale. Because that's how you do these things now. That's part of the problem. They have created the conditions so that if you want to be the kind of startup that No Evil Foods is, you know, present in 5,500 grocery stores or whatever the heck the number was at the time, you have to start by investing a ton of other people's money all of whom hate the idea of labor having rights. So then Mike Wolianski can step on stage and say, oh, it's not my fault. The investors won't like it, though. And this is another thing I've said very often on this show. There is nothing management hates doing more than its job description. Because Mike Wolianski could come up with a reason why it's okay to have a unionized workforce. He doesn't want to. He would rather the company run losses for the rest of its entire life. And avoid the union, then have to explain to one person who's richer than him, here's why it's fine that they're represented by a guild. And it's how much money could he have personally made from making sure that there is no union in his company? He's hoping to like, uh, eventually like, you know, go public. I don't know, whatever, like there will be a payoff for him personally. And how big or small will his payoff be if his workforce is unionized, if they do have rights? Well, Noah, you talk about this need for companies to, uh, quote, scale. Every, every company can't just be satisfied being in 5,500 grocery stores. They have to be in all of them. They have to be nationwide. They have to be the next big thing that is going to be everywhere. It, you know, there's this need for eternal growth, infinite growth. So what you have is 
a lot of companies that have never made a profit, like No Evil Foods, for example, or like Uber and Lyft, as we've talked about many times on this show before, that then turn around and use the fact that they don't make money as proof that they aren't exploitative, as proof that uh, a union just wouldn't be okay here, even if um, they're going to go so far as to say that, you know, unions work well at other companies, which is a common line in these anti-union discussions. Um, They'd work well somewhere else, just not here. That would disrupt our vibes. I believe he even has a quote where he says, I'm okay with socialism and unions, but just not here, Uh, which is mind blowing (laughs) that he's saying that. And I believe that the the Zapatista chicken, I think the actual Zapatistas and the Yucatan mm-hmm. Peninsula of Mexico complained and had them have to remove that name from their product. Yeah, they had to change it to El Capitan. So they're cowards, is where I'm going with this, on top of everything else. But we knew that. This is a an argument, I, I've never had to have this argument with the CEO of anything. But this is an argument you do see fairly often. And I think there is something, and again, this is not the first time we've mentioned this, but because of how the last year and a half has gone, I feel comfortable saying there is something in American work culture that is uniquely toxic to the idea of collective bargaining and unions. And please just know this. If you are a non-union workplace, if, if you work like I do in the non-union equivalent of a, a normally union work workplace, management hires for that kind of sentiment. They look for ways to ask you things that are going to make them think, oh, this person probably won't join a union, probably won't organize a union, probably won't push for more rights or more perks or better contracts or whatever. The idea being that then you don't have to worry about it. You you never have to have the fight because the people are already established as not being in favor of it. And then on top of that, if they do grow to be in favor of it, because here's the thing about this. If my boss sat me down with all of my coworkers to tell me why unions are bad for hours on end, my natural reaction would be to go, this man is full of crap. The union must be a good thing. But apparently this is a very rare reaction to that kind of meeting. Which, by the way, I Ryan, I think we talked about this when we talked about the Amazon vote, that one of the reasons Amazon was, uh, speaking of companies trying to like redefine the terms of a union election, Amazon was trying to set the, the term of the election very short, because once you actually have a union election, these meetings have to stop. The fact that they're legal at all is a travesty. Let's start with that. Well... The election was prolonged by the nature of the pandemic and allowing for uh, mail-in voting, such as it was. But um, in the case of No Evil Foods, that period of you know when these meetings had to stop was apparently very short because the speech I quoted from, according to this article, was two days before the election. And uh, union organizers in the article cite it as the moment they realized they were going to lose that election. The audience response to the speech he gave that I quoted heavily from was cheers. It was broadly supportive of his message. The vote would end up being 43-15 against the union just two days after that speech given to all those employees. The other connection to Amazon with this vote was that, um, uh, well, well, uh, No Evil Foods fired a lot of their workforce first of all, or they they shifted from a four-day schedule to a five-day schedule when they thought they were going to lose. And then they got new workers in who were thankful to have the job at No Evil Foods because they slightly increased the pay to something like $13 an hour. So people were talking about how like, we need to make a union. And then these new workers who came in who were thankful to get this like pay that was good for them were like, why are you trying to cause this problem? And then you have the CEO saying, like, we are this family, we have these good values, and saying, like, this outside union force is, like, sexist and racist and will cause all these problems. Like, and, and it was the same with Amazon and Bessemer, is that that's what some of the best paying jobs in a place like Bessemer was Amazon getting paid $15 an hour. So they have endless tactics to divide <laughs> workers. Um, uh, it's interesting that they do that in a place that's, like, that is much poorer and they can offer this 
small pay into these people is like more than what they're used to. And that's that's part of the base idea too. It's saying, you know, we're going to come in, we're going to offer something that's above anything that's available in the area because then we can threaten to take that away. That That's something that's mentioned in the article that, you know, if you're hearing Wolianski and these people talk about what could happen if the union comes in, you could, you know, you might not get a contract and you might lose the pay and blah, 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 because we have a labor law regime that does not punish companies in any way, shape or form for screwing over their workers because we didn't pass the PRO Act, because, you know, we have, we know what we've got for a political system. But it allows companies to go in front of their workers and say, well, if you suffer precarity again, if you don't get paid for your work and if you don't get benefits and so on, that will be the union's fault for coming in and ruining this relationship. And they're able to do that because of the situation around them, because there are no good paying jobs around them. And that in and of itself is part of the problem that that the the first union busting tactic becomes choosing carefully where to put your plants and where to put your industrial sites and all of that to make sure that you are hiring people who have every reason to be scared of what happens if a union fails to get the what they fails to get them what they deserve. On the broad scale, it's why American auto ma- manufacturing, when it hasn't been moved, you know, to other countries, now takes place in the South. The South is not as unionized as the uh, you know. Rust Belt, where these companies, you know, originated. And so states like Tennessee or Alabama, you know, these auto plants are union free and they are surrounded by places where historically the wages have been lower than in the unionized North. It was really interesting from the captive uh, meetings, uh, No Evil Foods, that Mm -hmm. they would say, like, if the union comes in, we will have to renegotiate our contract and you might get paid less. And they found it's illegal to say that you will get paid less if a union comes in. But they found this, these Pinkertons of propaganda found a way to get that across. You might get paid more, you might get paid the same, you might get paid less. And it's ridiculous without a union contract, like, uh, you will get paid less. You have no rights. They can cut your pay. They can do all sorts of things. But if you have that union contract, it's there. Uh, the other thing they would mention was that if we bring in a union, we'll have a union stored that you elect and a grievance process. But it's up to the union stored uh, whether they will take your grievance, pro- whether they will choose to protect you. And so they might not even protect you uh, if someone is sexually harassing you. And it's like, well, we don't have any protection now as it exists. <laughs> It's just massive hypocrisy. And then they're saying that if someone is sexually harassing you, they might, the union steward that you elect would choose to protect the harasser. It's just absurd. And it's like Activision and Blizzard, they have a CEO that's sexually harassing people. And there was no recourse other than for Activision Blizzard to just be incredibly stupid and try to protect this guy. And then you have this huge uproar that they have to get behind. But if you had a union in place, there would be restrictions on what these people could do. There would be a grievance process that the union would have to agree to in the contract process. It's just massive hypocrisy from No Evil Foods, massive contradictions and easily catchable lies. But if you're in hours and hours of these captive meetings, you can't keep track of everything. There were literally hours of captive meetings No Evil Foods put these people through, that Amazon put their workers through. That's a common tactic. And, and something, as we've mentioned on the show before, that the PRO Act would outlaw these sorts of mandatory meetings uh, for anti-union purposes like this. Um, I'm sure companies would find some way around that rule. They they always seem to have the best lawyers. But, um, you know, it, it could be something to put an end to at least some of this. Another thing that has frequently been pointed out is that while these companies are crying poor to their workers and saying, we just don't have enough money to pay you more, they never fail to find the money to pay these union avoidance firms. Uh, someone on Twitter, I believe, looked up you know the hourly rate for one, a lawyer at the firm that was representing New York Times management, and it, it is it is in the four digits. You know, it's... Uh, not cheap. So, so the question is often, you know, why are these companies spending so much money ostensibly to avoid spending money on their workers? Well, it's interesting. We already talked about this, but Williansky at No Evil Foods, in a very twisted way, says that like, oh, it's the investors. Like, you don't want to upset the investors because uh, they might 
fire you or do whatever. But at the same time, what he's not saying is that like, if the company is not as profitable because there is a union, I will not make as much money if I try to like sell out or do some other kind of financial vehicle to profit off this in the long term. Not that that's not a motivation, but I think part of it is genuinely that from what I've seen and heard and experienced of how managers in this country are trained and how they work with the labor that they're in charge of, American managers are incapable of dealing with workers that aren't being trod upon every second of every day. And companies are more willing to spend six. First of all, companies are willing to spend those six figures because you know what happens when those six figures are gone? You can't pay your employees with those. <laughs> it's the same tactic for why a lot of employers will contract out finding benefits like health insurance and retirement and so on to consultants who then drain money out of the budget because you're not paying one of your own employees to do that. You're paying somebody else who's going to charge more because they need to make a profit. And then that money is now a budget line item. So it's just not available for salary increases. It's not available for benefits to your employees. It's not available for anything. So what it, it, it becomes this way of taking that money out of the budget so that even if your employees successfully resist you and form a union, well, now the budget's smaller. I mean, we spent all that money fighting the union. You can't expect us to give you a raise when there's no money in the budget. We're going to turn our pockets out you know, and cry poor. This is something that everyone from you know billionaire owners of sports teams to small business owners, as we saw during the pandemic, love to pull. The classic is always that I don't want to deal with the possibility that my workers have rights, that they are self-actualized people, that they are capable of arguing for the things they deserve. That's why we don't have single-payer healthcare, even though for most employers, it would be a windfall. That's why we don't have a lot of these social services, because workers who have a safety net are more likely to mouth off to their boss. And if there is one thing American managers cannot deal with, it is the possibility, the nightmare, that one day one of their employees might say no. In the case of that Activision Blizzard CEO, I guess, you know, more relevant saying no than any of the other cases we've covered. But that is what they hate more than anything. The possibility that a worker can tell them, I'm not doing that. Or worse, I quit. Goodbye. That's where all the petulance comes from. That's where all the toddler behavior comes from. That's where all the constant need to prove that they're the good ones, capital G-O, comes from. Because if they had to think about what their actual position in society is, even for a second, they would all turn into Francis Townsend. Some listeners may feel that Noah is exaggerating in this argument, but he's not. Just last night on Fox News, there was a very perfect example of this argument being made explicitly. This clip went around Twitter for a while. Um, the guy from Bar Rescue, if you know what that is, was on Laura Ingram's show. Oh my God, um, I literally just saw this. They, they were talking about the unemployment benefits that uh, continue to be blamed for the labor shortage that a lot of companies are claiming to experience right now. Ingram asks, what if we just cut off the unemployment? Hunger is a pretty powerful thing. Taffer responds, they only feed a military dog at night because a hungry dog is an obedient dog. Well, if we are not causing people to be hungry to work, and then he trails off, but the point is obvious. Just explicitly making the argument that we need fewer benefits so that workers will be more pliable and more eager to work for whatever pittance managers are willing to give them. It's interesting, too. I feel like I'm learning a lot from listening to you guys. One of the things I'm also thinking about is the union that organized at Google or is trying to organize at Google, these tech workers, are listing, uh, they cite how Google used to say, uh, do no evil, but then they'd be like disappointed that Google are angry that Google is doing military contracts and things like that. And historically, one of the things we've seen from like a strong militant unionization is that unions will fight against not just like things that will material ben materially benefit the workers, like pay and like other health benefits, et cetera, but just try to stop companies or governments from doing things that they think are evil. And it's like not only for their self-interest, but for the self-interest of the world, because for a company, for capitalists, the bottom line is just profit. But unions, when they are democratic, when they are rank and file, 
These are just regular people. So they'd be like, yeah, I don't want Google to help make like robots that like help blow up like kids in Afghanistan or whatever. Like, and that will hurt their bottom line. Like there is something very powerful about that. The the late David Graeber had a book, uh, BS Jobs, that we've talked about on the show before. And, you know, one of his questions in that book was, you know, this book had profiled a lot of people who felt that their jobs were meaningless, not just in the sense that we all get that our jobs aren't really going anywhere, but that they weren't actually doing anything for anybody at their job. They were just there for reasons that they themselves didn't fully understand. You know, their purpose seemed so abstract and removed from whatever it is the company was ostensibly doing. And a conclusion he came to for why these jobs could exist when we are told that capitalism is this force that just grinds out everything in search of profit is that actually capitalism is run by managers. It's run by capitalists who have egos to feed. They have human urges, ostensibly human at least, to see themselves inflated and above people. They like having control over people, even if that control is going to cost them a little bit more. And so I think what we might have here today is a case of companies that are willing to pay the extra dollar, not not so much because it's going to save them money, though I'm sure it will in the long run, but because they like having control over a non-unionized workplace in a way that they would not over a unionized one. I know people that have worked in the hotel industry, and it is very interesting hearing uh, managers that would talk about how they would uh, work in a unionized hotel versus a non-unionized hotel, and how, oh, working in a unionized hotel is horrible, because I would tell someone to do something, and they would say, that is not my job, as if that (laughs) is a nightmare. When imagine the opposite from the worker, where it's like, I have a job being like a bellhop. I'm not going to uh, serve people drinks or anything like that. I'm not going to be abused of my time. Talk about that industry. It is people do get off on telling people what to do and prestige hotels and things like that. There's a um, feudal element to it that he points out that, you know, people like having titles. And the more people you have under you, the you know more prestigious a title Surely you must hold. And can be invented for you repeatedly if need be. No, this is absolutely the case. You know, one of my degrees is in medieval history. And you read about these dukes and counts and earls and what have you. And then you look at the management class we have and you really think people haven't changed at all. The difference is, of course, not everybody, not everybody, mostly it's still the same class of people. Now, typically you're not always guaranteed to get there just by being born to the right family. It helps 99% of the time. It's just not a guarantee anymore. But that obsession with having these titles and checking off these boxes and having these badges and all these things, this is also, by the way, what they try to transmit to the rest of us. This is what um, I'm trying to remember what the term was. It it was like micro badging or micro crediting or whatever, when you could get these little certifications that didn't really mean anything, but they just showed up on your employee website and you were supposed to feel good for them. Well, it's like Amazon's gamification of work where you can earn little trinkets. And they, they push that on you and they push that into education and they push that into healthcare and they push that into everything because it's the kind of thing that they enjoy. These are the kinds of people who like sit down with a nice glass of whatever their preferred beverage is to go look through an ACA exchange website for fun. Like that's who we've got running workplaces. Somewhat, in fact, like almost politically agnostic in a way. They might have politics that differ from each other, but in that one sense, they are very much the same kind of person. And the problem is that, and I think I've said this on the show before, that they then proceed to export that obsession and that, like, frankly, uh, like weirdness onto the rest of us. It becomes our problem to deal with. That our boss wants to be the radical vegan who is okay with socialism, but just not in his factory. That has to become our problem. It's not his to solve. He doesn't need to go to therapy to figure out why he has that feeling. We have to solve it for him by not voting for a union. I just like the idea that like the Earl of Sussex or the Duke of Batavia or something today is like the vice president of sales or something yes. like that. Yes. Thank you. That is exactly what it is. 
You tell me that Golisano or whoever isn't effectively a Duke of Western New York. We're running up against the clock here. Uh, apologies to listeners who were waiting for the third positive segment. We just don't have time for it today. For this week, I'm Ryan. I'm Noah. And I'm Greg. This is Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.